Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 28, Three Weeks in a Capsule. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So this is the podcast where we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to tell you the coolest information about what's going on here at NASA. So today we're talking about what it would be like to live and work in the Orion capsule with Jessica Voss. She's a crew systems engineer here at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. And we had a great discussion about how astronauts will operate in the Orion capsule for missions that can go up to three weeks, like how they'll eat, sleep, exercise, work, and if needed, be prepared for the worst. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Miss Jessica Voss. Enjoy. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. So living on Orion is going to be, it's going to be tough. How long are the missions that you're going to be living, if you were to say you're going to live on Orion for blank, what are you planning for? How long of a mission? Um, the longest that we're really thinking, it's designed to do four crew for 21 days. The longest that we're really thinking that will really work out is probably in that like 15, 16 day range. Huh. Um, because once you start docking to DSG, um, you've got um, facilities there. So you would just basically kind of shut down or close off the Orion and go use your habitat module the okay. much bigger spacious better stuff right yeah um and the same thing you're going to be on a transport vehicle when you're going that has some sort of a habitat kind of feature to it um, when you're going to mars right. so the just just orion piece would probably the longest you'd really need to be living in there is it's designed for 21 days so okay and that 21 days takes into account in case something goes wrong and you need some extra time or is it just the redundancy aspect of things well it's more it was more like the sizing sizing you okay. can try to squeeze a mission in that's right up to your 21 days and then you just have no margin for you know anything yeah but, but the size of all of the consumables and how much you know co2 scrubbing and how much water you need is stuff it's for four crew for 21 days okay so then more likely it'll be like the 16-day thing. Cool. So today let's talk about um, just Orion living on it and what that's going to look like. You know, like you said, the 21-day mission profile, it, it can support someone for 21 days and what that's going to look like if you were to live there for, you know, up to that much, but probably, like you said, shorter, 16 days. So let's start with Orion, like what... What is it? Because we talked with Najun Morancy about this in a previous episode, but for those who didn't listen to it, let's talk about, like, what is Orion? What's the shape of it? Like, if you were living in it, what's what's this house look like? Okay, so basically volume-wise, you're talking about a uh, maybe like a double minivan, you know? So, like, if you take the size of a minivan, if you've ever been on a road trip, you try to squeeze four or six people in a minivan, it can be kind of tight. But if you double that volume, that's kind of what we're talking about. Um, it's about 300 cubic feet hmm. of space. We are talking about putting four people in. Um, and 
the shape is um, very similar to what you saw in the Apollo days in mm -hmm. terms of that cone capsule, right? Physics kind of dictates that um, yeah. in terms of how, when you're coming back from deep space, there's a lot of energy that needs to be released uh, through the atmosphere. And that particular blunt body shape uh, does that really well. So you've got that, you know, the, the wide bottom with the skinnier top makes it look like a little cone. So very similar to that. Yeah. Okay, cool. But it's sounds like you said double minivan for four people. That's more space than I would think. Yeah, and, it, and you know, um, what's even better about it is the fact that you've got the, all of the volume to work with once you're in microgravity. That's so right. you don't just have the floor space, or you now have this really truly 3D space to do whatever you need to do in. So it's not just the four people in a double minivan in their seats and rocking around on the bottom of the, of the car, it's, or being strapped in their seats, it's truly floating within that space, so. Okay, so you got this double minivan sort of space. Let's let. How about the the lay of the land? I'm imagining the one in in Building Nine, the, the mock-up of it. Once you enter through that hatch, what are you looking at? Like, where are the seats? Where are the screens? Where's all that stuff? Yeah, so we are fortunate enough to have a full-scale Orion mock-up here in Building Nine at Johnson Space Center. Cool. In the space vehicle mock-up facility, it's like a big playground for spacecraft. <laughs> um, when we went, we we enter our mock-up, you enter through the side hatch and. As you enter, you first step on a step, and um, when you get in, you'll see um, there's a little bit of a space between your foot and the seat pan, the leg pan of the seats for the crew. And there are four of those seats aligned uh, two and two. So two of them kind of, they don't stack, like lay on top of each other, like bunk beds, it's not like that, but okay. they're aligned um, two and two in like rows. Uh, to your left. Okay. If the crew were laying in their seats to see you as you come into the side hatch, they would need to turn their heads to the right. Okay. So, so their the first, feet. Yeah, are, the first thing you see are their feet and their heads are kind of towards the wall. Right. Okay. Yeah. So their legs are kind of oriented towards the center of the spacecraft and their heads are toward the outside. And that's so that their heads can line up pretty much directly underneath the displays and controls as well as the windows. Oh. So without moving their head a whole lot, they have visibility um, to to look out the windows for orientation during um, you know dynamic phases of flight and understanding where they are relative to the stars <laughs> <laughs> through through the window. And then they also have all of the information that they need to execute those maneuvers on the displays and controls right in front of them. Um, it also is a real interesting thing about that design of the seats. They um, don't have to do a whole lot of manipulation. Like if you think about, oh, well, why don't we do really super fancy touch screens? Yeah. Well, if you're in a vibration environment, like during launch, um, your hands are really heavy actually, and your fingers are gonna be moving around if you unstrap them from that seat and then try to go touch the screen. Right. So they much prefer, of course, the switches and the dials and the buttons, which we have on the outer edges of our displays and controls. Um, we recently did some testing, uh, it was just, I think it was last year, about this time last year, where we did a legibility under vibration test with the crew. And so you had the whole system of the seat, the suit, and the human all vibrating under what we would determine, what we have determined to be our launch loading condition, the vibration condition. And then they have to tell us basically, are they able to read the screen and execute what they're supposed to be doing based on those commands um, under the vibration condition? So the whole point is that they're able to do what they need to be doing under all the dynamic, dynamic phases of flight. 
So the seat is the design is for that purpose. All right. Yeah, I'm imagining like uh, I don't know if you've ever been like in the car or something. You see the you see the clock like going up and down like the yep. digital clock, and it's really hard to read. And you're like, what time is it? And if you do need to reach and push the button next to the clock, like, can you? you know? <laughs> Are you gonna push the right one? That's true because under launch, you got all this weight on you. So then after that, you got the you got the screens. So then they have these these buttons around the screens, right? That you can press. Yep. So that's um, and that's part of the design, right? Three screens. Yes, that is part of the design. You've got two um, people monitoring those three screens. So oh, you've cool. got a little bit of that kind of ability for both people to operate both screens. Um, hmm. Now, or I would say two screens at a time. So that middle screen, you're going to get people being reach and access wise. Those two crew members, uh, you know, co-pilot and pilot are going to be able to both see and touch at least those two screens in front of them. And then you've kind of got the... Um, the outer screens being monitored by one person at a time. Okay. Um, the switches are very important. That's what gives them that tactile feedback of knowing that they've actually done something while they're wearing, while they, while they have their gloves on. Mm. So it's easy for us, you know, with the fancy iPhones to just really gently feel a tap on our, the home screen button, right? But yeah. that's not the same when you've got layers of a suit going around your hands, right? So for them to know that they indeed have actuated something that they really like that switch feel. And uh, so there are specific designs around how those switches feel to the crew member and to make sure that they know that they have in fact actuated what they were supposed to actuate. Yeah, it's the space version of responsive design for yep. like as if your phone, but a lot of other things to consider. Yep. Awesome. So that's like the, that's the pilot area and that's where you would, you would I guess, quote unquote, fly Orion, right? So then, but, so is this the rest of the area that you're looking at, like you said, when you when you go through the hatch, mm -hmm. this whole area, is that the living area or is there more? So there is space that's up back behind their heads. Okay. Um, and there, and that we call that the ECLIS wall. There's a, ECLIS is environmental control and life support. So there's like a, a wall back there that, houses all of that equipment and then in front of that is a bunch of stowage um, a bunch of w like webbing kind of material that yeah. you know you kind of uh, carabiner hook to different d-rings and places to kind of stow stuff in and kind of keep it stowed back there underneath the pallet the floor underneath the floor is more stowage um, that is also where some of the avionics bays are i believe and then is some of the um other systems from for the vehicle that humans require such as the waste management system very important <laughs> <A> very important <laughs> so yeah it somehow it all squeezes in there okay and that's really the that's really what orion is is trying to trying to get you know like this this camper that you're going to be living in for uh, 20 or 16, 21 days whatever mm -hmm. and just squeeze all this stuff in that you need for all of that stuff knowing that it's not like you can stop at a convenience store or a gas station along the way to pick anything Exactly. Up. In yeah. fact, as I speak to you this afternoon, there's a team of engineers um, at one of the off-site mock-up facilities that are doing a stowage evaluation. So they're literally right now playing that 3D game of Tetris and trying <laughs> to figure out where all this mass and stuff is going to go. Because you also have to think about the CG of the vehicle, both on launch and on landing. It's got to be uh, very specific. So things have to be put in certain places. And then you, there's also 
also another very good consideration or important consideration, and that is with respect to reach and access. Um, with the crew coming home and going through this dynamic phase of flight, there are certain things that you're going to want them to be able to get to pretty much right away. Um, so there's some stowage that is literally right on their seats. There's so stowage of things that's right next to them or such that one particular crew member can get there in a very quickly quick amount of time. Um, so it's not like you can just put stuff wherever you want to. There's also consideration, right, for not storing things like food next to things like the WMS. So, <laughs> so um, it, it gets tricky. And so they re redo these evaluations as the designs for all this equipment, um, crew equipment matures. All right. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to get some tips from you for for my dad because to how to pack a camper for a camping <laughs> trip to make it the most efficient way possible. He can definitely appreciate that because he's an expert packer, but not compared to an Orion crew systems engineer. Yeah, these guys. These guys have got it down. I'm telling you. Wow. All right. So obviously, you know, you're you're maximizing this the limited space that you have and thinking about every component about where things are stored and where things are. So you know, the living portion of things, right? What is, what's the lay of the land for, you know, you, now now you can get out of your seat and it's time to go do stuff. Where's everything else? Like food. So um, there is a series of lockers, both on that kind of ecless wall that I was telling you about and a, a few more underneath the, the pallet um, on the, the floor. And, um, I think portions of the food are stored in both of those places, if I understand correctly. It could be that all of them maybe went in one of the lockers underneath the seats now that I'm thinking about it. But um, <laughs> they need to, uh, they are each stored. Um, the way that the food is going to be stored is very similar to what we see currently on the space station, which is that they're they're flown up in very specific size, sized uh, compartments. I think they call them CTBs. And um, they, they'll be, um, organized either by crew member or by you know type of food that it is um and each of those gets put into a certain locker yeah. <laughs> and given a certain you know spot to be yeah um it, that's the same for uh a, a lot of the equipment actually it's just it's all going to be um, in a particular locker. There's a few different sizes of lockers and a few different kind of orientations but it's all stowed away mm -hmm. um I think more interestingly, there is the exercise device. Ah. And the exercise device is this a neat little box that is going to be going to serve as the step to the side hatch as well. So in zero ah. gravity, of course, you don't need a step, right, to do anything <laughs> with the side hatch. You're not using the side hatch. You really don't want that hatch to open on orbit. But yes. on landing, um, when the crew is somewhat deconditioned after having been in microgravity for Ten, uh, 16 to 21 days, yep. um, they might need a step to get up and over that edge. So the idea is that this box that's taking up space serves two functions. It's going to be the step to allow the crew to get in and out, um, and it's and the recovery crew as well, and it's the exercise device. And right now, the exercise device is planned to be, uh, it's kind of cool because it doesn't require any power. It's oh. just a flywheel-based device that's got... Um, uh, some smart settings to it that allow the crew to um, execute different prescriptions that the ACERs give them. That's the astronaut strength and conditioning rehabilitation specialists, I think. Gotta have the an acronym. ACERs. Yeah. They provide the exercise prescriptions, and um, that 
that one box alone will allow the crew members to get at least 30 minutes of exercise activity that will challenge their cardiovascular systems and their musculoskeletal systems as required. So, all right. Yeah. So a little tiny box and it's kind of like a, I'm imagining a rowing machine, right? That you would see in the gym, kind of like that, but obviously more advanced. So it can do aerobic and resistive exercise, meet all the needs that you need for right. Cause space station right now has the advanced resistive, resistive exercise device, Absolutely. which is like a big weightlifting machine. You don't have room for that. No, we ain't got no room for that. <laughs> <laughs> and In it's fact, got a treadmill. I mean, from what Naju said, you could potentially stand up, right? If you were to, like, if touch the base, like, there's enough room where yes. you can stand up straight. Yes, you can. I, th I believe... I know I can, but I'm only 5'3". Oh, so, okay. So um, I, I don't know that the, I believe we um, this, the crew module is sized for, I think, up to a 6'4 individual, wow. if I'm correct. So yeah, you don't have to be particularly short. You will, you know, uh, there is limits to which seat we can put you in <laughs> if you are on that taller edge. Oh. Um, but, uh, and I do believe that, uh, I think somebody at least up to six foot would be able to, like Najud said, stand and in the center of the capsule. Wow. But you're right, when you're rowing, you're still going to get into a standing stature position, but in zero gravity, we're gonna have you do it through the um, the center of the spacecraft. Uh, so you're not going up to the tip of the cone, You're not right? going you're up, going, yeah, yeah, you're not going up to where the docking hatch is on the top at the yeah. very, at the tip, you're going to the other side of the spacecraft. So you're starting at the side hatch, right underneath the side hatch, and you're extending your body long out to the other side of the spacecraft. Ah, uh, okay. So that, that's, oh, so that takes up a decent amount of real estate, right? That's the, that's it the sure does. working out real estate. And where is everyone else while someone is working out? I guess they're in, they're all in the same room, right? <laughs> they absolutely are. <laughs> and it's funny because when you think about how much time is really going to be spent each day, when you have four crew members doing at least 30 minutes each, this, we're talking a couple hours that that person is going to be basically occupying a good chunk of the space while they exercise and everyone else is going to have to be kind of staying out of the way right yeah. so it's going to be interesting plus the uh the noise i'm thinking of a rowing machine right so plus the noise of ramp <laughs> ramp oh yeah <laughs> Absolutely. There's, that's a good topic actually because really? there are several acoustic requirements imposed oh. on every system that goes into the cabin for just that reason like you it's very hard to um, concentrate and focus and get real work done right if you are constantly you know, having to deal with a buzz, you know how that anno how annoying that can be. Yes. So there are there are a lot of acoustic requirements placed on all of the different systems that have to be continuously operating. Um, and really? yeah, the exercise device is one of them. Absolutely. So there's an acoustic. It has to be. It can't exceed like this noise level or something. Certain, yep. Interesting. Yep. So have you simulated something like an environment where people are living in Orion for a couple days already, or is that still to come? Like so you can understand the acoustic environment and say, hey, that's annoying or something like that. So there haven't been, there has not been, to my knowledge, any day in the life of type of tests specific okay. to the Orion capsule. However, there have been a series of uh, analog tests being done in terms of um, the isolated environment. Mm -hmm. So right here at Johnson Space Center, the Human Research Program owns the HERA, mm -hmm. which is the Human Exploration Research Analog. Yeah. Um, and they do study uh, how humans behave in isolation and their, the effects on team dynamics. And they try to stress them out a little bit, right? And try to see how they can improve on um, uh, the team dynamics, basically. It's very, it's very BHP, behavioral health and performance oriented. Mm -hmm. Not as much as, um, hey, you know, what, what, what is the Orion design 
adequate or sufficient. We haven't gotten to that point with the Orion design yet in terms of verification yeah. and uh, validation. We will with EM-1 and EM-2. We've got sensors on EM, the EM-1 mission that uses the Orion capsule that will measure acoustics and all radiation right. and all that good stuff. Um, but in terms of the people aspect, we've studied it here through the Human Research Program in HERA. And Unfortunately, the volume of that is just way beyond, but <laughs> it's huge in there. Yeah. So they have way more, vo way more vo um, volume and space to live and work in. Yeah. The acoustics, though, I would say is probably one of the things that they do tweak to try to see if it stresses the crew out. But I couldn't uh -huh. speak to the results of that. But <laughs> I'm sure that it's one of the things that they try to tweak as a variable to see yeah. what kind of impacts in terms of stress it has on the crew. Definitely. We actually just had um, Lisa Spence and Paul Haugen here earlier today to talk about Hera. And by the time this comes out, I believe there's a Hera episode already, Space Habitats. So awesome. there, should, there should already be a little bit more about that. And I was picking her brain, but obviously they're still, they're still researching. They still have to collect the data, oh, yeah. so they haven't they haven't like you know consolidated everything into a published paper quite yet, and more to come. But um, absolutely, totally transferable to an, an Orion environment, the human element to that, yep. right? So, yep. um, what other sorts of uh, living systems are on um, are on Orion? I guess. Well, okay, I'll lead you in the right direction for, uh, for example, environmental, right? So, mm -hmm. to live, you have to you know. You're in space, but it's got to be a certain temperature, right? You got to have yep. oxygen and carbon dioxide removal and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, those How humans are rather picky, <laughs> right? <laughs> like we take an exact, just so much of a temperature swing or a pressure swing, and we just get uncomfortable really fast. <laughs> so, <laughs> so and there's a comfort in it and survival, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, Orion will be pressurized to 14.7 pounds per square inch, or PSI, which is exactly what you would see here in Houston, Texas, because we live pretty much at sea level. Um, so that's fantastic. Yeah. Don't really have to deal with any sort of feelings or impacts to performance due to changes in pressure. Cool. Um, the air is also um, the exact same concentration of uh, oxygen and nitrogen and all the rest of the trace contaminants is to be, well, we should be cleaner, honestly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we're looking at 21% oxygen and the rest nitrogen for the most part. So. All right. So it's, okay, so it's emulating all of that. And all of this is in a tiny, is, is, the environmental systems, did they have to be designed to be more compact or was it kind of a cut and paste sort of technology? Great question. So I, I believe that what we are flying on Orion is a fairly new uh, and more compact system. Um, it is a, um, a mean swing bed. It's a solid amine swing bed technology hmm. of which we have three units. And it's designed to be, as most systems are uh, on the spacecraft, anything that's needed for nominal missions um, and nominal mission duration for four crew for 21 days. We try to design redundancy into so that if, if once something happens and you're just not quite sure what it was, okay, we know what we're going to switch to this other thing instead, or we're just going to use the second one that we that we did, you know built into the system. So um, that's how the ECLA system is. We have three units and. Each unit has two beds that swing. Um, so, and that what the the purpose of the solid amine is to basically remove the CO2 from the air. There's other kinds of um, filters within that system that'll take out other types of contaminants. But the main the main thing that we really worry about from a human health perspective and human performance perspective is that CO2. So, 
um, taken, it'll take out the CO2. Uh, it basically attaches. It's like it's, it's solid meat is really sticky. It likes the CO2. And then when we flip the bed and expose it to vacuum, all of it goes away. So once, wow. yeah. So once the bed is full, you turn around, expose it to vacuum. I think it's like 20 minutes or something max. And then you flip it around again. Um, and we have three different units that do that same process. All right. Um, yeah. All right, so <laughs> pretty efficient then, I would, I would guess, right? Because you, you're right, you built in the redundancy. Yep. And talking with Najud before, that redundancy is built like, all right, let's, we can have this amount, but if we go, if we do, you know, more redundant systems, then that's more weight. So what's the right amount? And then boom, you locked in on the three, you said, right? Yep. Yeah, very cool. Yep. And there's like every single system has to have that trade um, of how much fault tolerance you're going to build into it. Some systems, we just say, you know what, we're going to have to, we, we can't afford it. We're going to have to fly in terms of mass. So we just, we don't have the spare mass for this one versus this other more important one that we need the mass for. Mm -hmm. So we are going to decide to control it via operational controls in flight instead. Just make sure that we only operate it for this much time or we only use it for this much. And and you can, you know, there are, those are some of the other ways that you can manage the uh, resources and the consumables that you don't have extra of, right? Mm, yeah. And power is, is like that quite a bit. It's the same way on the space station right now. Like yeah. you, you have to know exactly what you're plugging into and how long <laughs> you're plugging into it because you could short something else out over here, you know? Ooh, yeah. So. So I guess thing, Orion has power constraints too, right? Yes. Is it, is it going to be solar powered? Yes. Okay. Very cool. So mm -hmm. how, how is the solar panels now? Because I've seen various pictures in the past of, you know, you got the ones that are more circular and ones <laughs> that are more like an X. So what are, we're the X. We're the X now? Yeah. Cool. I like that one. Yeah, <laughs> we are the X. We've got four. Sweet. Um, you know, that kind of do the pretty unfolding thing. All right. right. So, yeah, but they go, they extend out fairly long. I don't know the exact numbers, but mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. And that'll, that it, it'll be solar powered and, mm -hmm. okay, very cool. So another big one that I know about is, and you were talking about all the important stuff being around, the waste management, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to be on there in the one room with four people for quite some time. So how is yep. the bathroom situation? Tiny. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it, it is a very tiny, like smaller than a telephone booth, like closet thing. All right. Um, it is very <laughs> tiny. And it's really funny too, because I, I believe as it's oriented right now, just because you only have so much room in the spacecraft, mm -hmm. right? I think the exercise device sits right above the door for the <laughs> WS. No. So, <laughs> so you may have to interrupt somebody's exercise session to go in and then re you know interrupt it again to get out. So, you know, wow. but you know, that's what it's like when you're camping and living in a camper you just <laughs> it's how things go so it's true um but yeah the the design of the actual system itself the, the, of the potty itself is similar in um you know concept to what we use on station today it's okay. it's, it's basically purposely driven airflow that's being um, intentionally directed in a certain way uh you know to help stuff get out and not get all over the place also very um, important. Yes. And then it gets contained into a, uh, a, a, a canister that's got some odor control features to it. And then once that canister gets full, it can be sealed and closed off, and then you stick a brand new one in. And so 
All right. It's it's kind of a fancy bucket with a hose <laughs> on the end of it and, <laughs> and some odor control features. <laughs> hey, that's going to come in handy because that's right next to the exercise, too. Yes, so that I whole know. area, I know I would hang out uh, at the other side if I was at Orion for the most part, for sure. But, yeah, in general, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot of privacy going to be offered mm. on, on this vehicle. I mean, it, of course, they will. Uh, there's always the option of um, hanging up your sleeping bag. I think you had a question about that, and it's really more of just a blanket with neat Velcro straps on it that allow you to adjust the squeeze squeezeability, right? How tight it is on your body, and then yeah. some D rings to adhere it to some piece of the structure so that you don't go floating off into each other while you're sleeping. <laughs> but um, there is the option of hanging that up, you know, putting the D ring up or getting it unfolded and sticking out so that you want to be behind it. But I'm just, I can't imagine that it, with. 21 days of taking that much time and energy to make sure that you get, you know, behind your little curtain. I don't know. We'll, well you know, I would assume with a crew of four astronauts that are going on these missions, I would assume that they are going to be a very tight-knit group of people. Yeah. And just talking with space station astronauts and even even Hera, just talking with them too. When Whenever you're with people in these environments, you learn to, you know, teamwork is very important, camaraderie is very important, and all of that sort of translates into... If you're going to the bathroom, respect each other. Yes, <laughs> so, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So, so just out of curiosity, actually, um, just in, I'm thinking about the movie Apollo 13. So when they were on that trip, they didn't have the water recycling system that we have on the International Space Station. They literally ejected it out into space, and it sort of had this like cool crystal effect as it was kind of floating away. Is that what's going to happen on Orion? It absolutely is. Oh, that is so cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure they're, they're going to be able to see it the same way, <laughs> you know, just based on where our windows are and where that ejection port is, but um, <laughs> the evacuation <laughs> port, I guess. But yeah, that's how we're going to do it. Ah, uh, okay. I hope they get some good views. This kind of sounds weird to say, but it is kind of cool to see the, the crystallization of the peak. Yeah, so I've heard. You know, one thing I was thinking about, actually, is we just moved right from flying the thing and like how where everyone's going to be sitting mm -hmm. to just kind of living. But I know there's going to be a launch and entry suit that you have to wear at first, mm -hmm. right? So these bulky like orange suits, right? It's kind of like the, it's it's an upgraded new fancy pumpkin suit, right? Right. Kind of. So once you're wearing that and now you're in orbit and now you're transitioning to, um, to living in, on Orion, where does that pumpkin suit go? So it has a, it has another locker. Just a locker. <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. Just another locker. Um, but that suit becomes really important in some of the, in, on orbit, um, in the event that some emergency happens, like a depressed cabin. Mm. So if something happens that causes your cabin to depress for any reason, um, all of the systems in there, including um, the food system and everything, are meant to be um, to provide for 144 hours of depressurized cabin survival. Oh, okay. So 144 hours, basically six days. Yeah. So that's kind of like, yeah, the worst case, you're on the far other side of the moon and something happens, your cabin depresses, and you have six days till you can get home. From the far side of the moon, though, how how long until you get home? Six days. Oh, okay. So you, it's literally planned for exactly that in worst case scenario. It's meant to cover that worst case scenario. Absolutely. Okay. So in that event, you're getting in your suit and you're living in your suit. So that suit also has some unique features to it that this pumpkin suits from the space shuttle program did not have. Oh, okay. Um, that would allow for, you know, um, the collection and mitigation of uh, human waste. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, because that's six days worth of mm -hmm. living, right? Yeah. Um, it's also going to allow you to take in some calories and some water. 
Okay. Um, so there's special um, food bags and food um, like uh, consti- consistent. Uh, what am I trying to say? Like um, um, material. Like it's going to be. And you wouldn't normally eat it, but it, when you if you would have if you had to, it's going to be like this. I don't want to say sludge, but it's kind of like a it's like a powdery mixture that you would. Um, it's not like the running gel, right? Is it kind of? It would like be running? kind of like that. Okay. Yeah, that would allow you to take in a, a lot of calories. <laughs> yeah, that's what those are for. <laughs> in right? a pouch, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But it's specific to interfacing with the spacesuit and um, being operated with gloved hands and with a vacuum on the outside environment, right? So it's it's a pretty tricky thing to. to is it like a straw that goes through the helmet or something, and then you squeeze it through? Or? Uh, basically, that's what you would see. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's how, well, that's how I'm imagining it. I'm sure it's more complicated. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so there's a whole team of engineers that is working on putting that system together to make wow. sure that the crew won't be starving for that 144 hours that yeah. they will. But, but you, know, you can't pop the visor. You can't, you know, the whole the whole interior of the spacecraft at that point is a vacuum. Right. So, so you have to survive in the suit and that suit has to support you for six days. Yep. Whoa. Yeah. That's cool. I actually think is it um, is it Cody Kelly? Yes. Is that the guy? Okay, yeah. I got his name about crew survival and stuff. I'm totally gonna have to bring him on the podcast. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that would be a he's a fun person and he does all the fun stuff. So <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. That would be cool. Yeah, that that so the suits themselves are designed, but then you know they go into a, a tiny little locker and and then you know hands off for that. Um, In fact, the seats do as well. Oh, the seats go in lockers. Yeah, the whole the whole cabin configuration just kind of changes from okay, we're in flight mode to now we're in just coast mode, right? Whoa! <laughs> and just live and do the, science experiments. Do and the stuff. screens stay? Yes. The screens stay. Mm-hmm. Chairs go. Suits go, and it opens up this whole thing. Yep. Oh, that's so cool. You know what? I did skip over because you you did briefly mention it, and then I just sort of skipped over it. But beds, you know, like sleeping. It sounds like it's just going to be a sleeping bag strapped to a wall. Right. Yeah. All I right. was going to say, not so much with the beds. There's <laughs> there's no mattress, no. But there's also no gravity, so it's kind of cool. And this yeah. is this. It's very similar to on space station. Right. They find themselves rather comfortable once you know they adjust. Mm-hmm. Um, that whole you know. The way you feel when you first enter microgravity and the first couple of days can be a little a little strange on the body, but yeah. it, you you do get used to it fairly um, quickly. It only takes a couple of days, and but once you're there, it's really comfortable. And the what they do is they have a blanket that it, it's just thin though. It's not like a big poofy sleeping bag or anything like that. It's just thin because the temperature inside the cabin is you know that very comfortable kind of 72 to 75 degrees, mm. and it's um got various straps in places so that where you want to feel that snuggy feeling, right? You can do it tight. But for the most part, they actually like to just kind of leave it a little bit loose. And um, you'll see them, they kind of sleep like zombies. Like they have right. their arms out in front of them and they're just kind of hanging and they're floating. <laughs> and it's funny because these the station sleeping, quote unquote, sleeping bags, are they've got all of this straps and this and that to make sure your head doesn't go bobbling around. And so you can hook yourself to the wall and you can get it super tight if you want. And it just seems like none of that gets used. They just, <laughs> the, the, just floating there feels nice. You yeah. know? If you can imagine if you just kind of let your body just float in a pool. Oh, yeah. That's you a good know? feeling. That's a good feeling. Yeah. So they're just, they're just like, all right, I'm going to sleep now. And they just lean back and let their arms float. And, yeah. You know, but they do, they do, I think, at least give themselves a little bit of a restraint so that they know they're not going to end up in some 
somebody else's space overnight or into a different module entirely. So. That's true. You don't yeah. want to play like space bumper cars in right. the middle of the night, just kind of slamming into each other. That'd be weird. Yeah, just from talking for a couple um, to a couple astronauts, they've said sleeping. You know, once you get used to it, sleeping in space is probably the best sleep you'll ever get. Because if you think about it, right, even in a bed on here on Earth, you still have gravity pushing you against that bed. In space, you have And it's nothing. pushing that weight of the blanket on you, too, which is so comforting. Oh, right? that, is so, a, that is comforting, yeah. yeah. But I, just nothing pressing on you, that's got to be a fantastic feeling. Yeah. I bet you it should. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, for the, for the way the mission is designed for, for Orion missions, would it be kind of lights out, crew go to sleep all at the same time, or are they going to be shifting? They, as far as I understand it, there's not going to be much shifting. They're oh. going to be on a very similar, in terms of a day-night schedule and sleep schedule, it'll be fairly similar. Okay. What they will shift is their exercise sessions and their kind of personal time sessions. But from a uh, day-night cycle, it'd be, it'd be the same. Okay. Do you have the ability to sort of switch to like night mode and maybe turn the lights off or change them to like a warmer color? Well, so it's, it's interesting you ask that because lighting is a big deal in terms of, you know, the habitability of an environment, Definitely. right? You can have some really harsh lighting and just like headaches all the time and <laughs> just be really like, um, and it's due to the lighting. Um, so I believe that the systems, there are requirements now for how we design habitable, how habitable environments and what kind of lighting is required. Mm-hmm. And I know that they've implemented um, some interesting new blue light stuff up on Space Station. Yeah. So um, I believe that that is one of the, um, going to be one of the capabilities with the lighting system in Orion is to have different basically modes of light. Um, I don't know how fancy they're going to get because it's not <laughs> like we've got the Lexus of spacecrafts here, you know? <laughs> but, but um but that is something that is, in terms of helping them stick to a cycle, um, a day-night cycle with the whole circadian rhythms and all of that stuff, it, they've, all of that science has been done. We know it works. And so I believe that part of, at least some of that is going to be implemented in the lighting system in Orion. Yeah. Because I know they're, they are doing, a, it's called the lighting effect study on station. And it's exactly that. LED lights change them to a little warmer things in, in your um, crew quarters or mm -hmm. something. So at night, you don't have this big fluorescent light in your, Absolutely. In your face. Absolutely. Yeah, they use them at, um, in Hera, too. Oh, oh yeah, they do. Mm -hmm. That's right. The whole bottom floor of the lab has a completely different set of lights than the the habit habitation floors, mm -hmm. um, both with the galley and the exercise equipment and stuff, and then the sleeping tents, you know, on the very top floor of Hera. So yeah, just yeah. A actually learning some of this stuff from Hera from this lighting effect study. I actually put like a blue light filter on my phone and mm -hmm. on my computer, like mm -hmm. so at night I can you know I can browse a little bit without having to worry about it actually affecting my sleep, yep. which. After learning about it, I realized, oh my gosh, that's why I, I'm not sleeping. It's because I'm screens before bed. You can't do it. <laughs> so in terms of speaking of screens, they will have laptops. Cool. Um, anywhere between two and four. There might be a couple laptops and a couple of iPads. And all of that is still to be determined. But mm -hmm. the it is currently accounted for in terms of the mass allotment for that kind of a system. All right. And there's some dependencies there and, and some reasons why we would use that stuff. Um, one is to get rid of a bunch of paper, right? You can do, do all of your procedures and stuff from your tablet. They, they mm -hmm. do that on station all the time now. Um, and another, um, especially uh, from the crew health perspective, is that that's how they would be able to do any sort of um, video conferencing, right, with home. Ah. So I say that at the same time, the way that EM2, uh, the EM2 vehicle is currently equipped, it's only got the S-band 
uh, communication technology. So only radio, no visual. Pretty much. Okay. You, you got you know, squeeze a little bit in there, but pictures, but not probably not real time Skype like video. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, but there is some uh, potential to expand Orion's capability with optical communication, okay. and once they would do that, then for sure they'd be using these laptops to do more, you know, videoing with with their families at home. But um, they they absolutely will have time each day or at least every other day or something along those lines to be communicating with their families. Nice. Yeah. All right. So that's part of their day, right? Actually, that's that's a good conversation to have is we know that they are, you know, they're going to be working out, that we know that they're going to be sleeping. What's a day on Orion like when, on this mission? I guess, you know, talking with family, but, you know, what's I'm, is that built into the mission profile? So um, we are flying uh, people that are very good pilots for <laughs> a reason. <laughs> good pilots and good scientists, right? Okay, well, I guess it's pilots, scientists, and engineers. All right. Um, and the reason for that, is because you need people this this em2 mission is a mission that has not been done before um it's similar things have been done in apollo but that spacecraft was different and um the designs and how we got the mission done was a little bit different um so this em2 mission is really a checkout mission and there's a lot of dynamic phases of flight a lot of you know translunar injection burns and stuff going on we're co-manifesting a payload on -hmm. this mission so there is a lot to, and it's just the first time that all of this stuff is going to be used in the manner that it was meant to be used by humans, right? EM-1 will test out a lot of the structure and the the systems that are just automated um, right. and controlled from the ground, so that's good. But this is when the humans will kind of, you know, be be test doing the, the, the ringing out of all the different things that may or may not have been known <laughs> <laughs> about about how this design is going to work. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so they're going to be doing a lot of, you know, um, checking out, a lot of system checkout okay. um, and kind of on purpose, you know, kind of driving certain systems to to do certain things. Um, they're going to be piloting and um, navigating that spacecraft through all the different dynamic phases of flight. They Definitely. are going to be, there's, there probably will be some science, but I don't expect that to come until like a little bit later missions once we've really kind of fleshed out what the system can handle and what it can because they need to be ready just in case something just isn't working the way it was planned to designed to for whatever reason right um they will spend a little bit of time um doing their meal prep and meal time and for the most part that's kind of the only planned relaxation time right they do have their personal time of personal hygiene and the which usually is right after the exercise right and <laughs> um but from as a as a as a crew and, and being able to just just fo- just relax sit back and you know uh, i would say drink your coffee but squeeze your coffee because <laughs> it's in the same kind of like it's like a capri sun for coffee all right <laughs> same kind of thing with a special straw on it that keeps it from leaking out when you're not actually sucking on it um and so from that standpoint, there there is meal prep time. Um, the food comes in a, a, lots of different kinds of packages that take different kinds of preparation. That whether that's just heating or putting water in and letting it sit out and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So they'll they'll prep the food, they'll prepare their coffee, and then they'll sit back and eat, and they'll do that um, two three times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's pretty much the extent of what they're going to be doing on on EM two. 
All and then right. once we start getting, hopefully we'll understand how these systems behave and how much maintenance they all really require and, and be able to move into doing more science, even on the shorter Orion missions, and then extend that into what um, the, the Deep Space Gateway would have on their, with their habitation module and their labs and stuff. All right. I can think of like a lot of different podcast episodes just on all of this, right? Like mm-hmm. we could probably do one just on EM2 so people understand what that's all about. We could probably do one just on some concepts for Deep Space Gateway. Like there's a lot of like, because I can definitely ask a lot of questions, but we will be here for hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's not do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's freezing in here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I should have said to bring a jacket. Um, we, we did talk briefly with Najud about EM1 and mm-hmm. just the structure of, of that mission real brief right another thing we need to do is actually cover em1 through and through Mm -hmm. but that's going to be no crew it's going to be going translunar injection way out past the moon coming back super fast to test the heat shields and you're right a lot of it is structural and just understanding about the spacecraft yep do you think you can give like a two-minute explanation of em2 or is that really something we should probably save for a podcast well for the two-minute explanation um (laughs) We will be uh, launching from from Kennedy Space Center on okay. top of the SLS, and there will be a co-manifested payload along with this mission. So not only is it the first um, manned mission of Orion, but we will also be bringing cool little payload along with us. Um, and um, the AA-2, um, I was trying to think about the launch abort. So there's the, there will be the last system on top of the Orion. So in terms of the rocket stack that you'll see, you'll see SLS, you'll see um, Orion, but Orion will be covered by the last shroud, the launch abort system shroud. Mm-hmm. Um, that but The test of that system is actually coming up before EM-1. So that'll uh, be really exciting to see. Yeah. Um, so... Once we, uh, after we launch, we're go- and we get rid of the last because n- we didn't need it. Thank goodness, right? Everybody, everybody's cool. Um, we will be going around um, the orbit one time in kind of a low Earth orbit, and then we'll continue on into a high Earth orbit. At which point, we'll kind of separate from the first stage and let that go. And um, the co-manifested payload and Orion will go in different directions, both going to the Moon, but in different different orbit trajectories, orbital trajectories. Ah, okay. So there will be two different stages of the rocket taking these two things in two different directions, and they'll do two different um, translunar injections. Hmm. But um, at that point in the mission, the Orion and the service module are heading out to um, the moon, as are the co-manifested payload, um, or as is the co-manifested payload. When um, it is on a trajectory that's going to take several, several days to get into a different orbit. It's going to be a um, near rectilinear halo orbit that the co-manifested payload will be going into, and we will be going into just a free return trajectory around the moon. Okay. All right. And then... And that is expected, for the, from the Orion perspective, it takes about yeah, about 10 to 12 days to do that mission. Okay, 10 to 12. And that's when we're getting to the Orion can last for 21 days, but this is this is a more of a 10 to 12 sort of deal. Yep. Okay. So the co-manifested payload, that stays there, right? It doesn't come back? It does not come back. But the people definitely do, right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, cool. So yeah, the co-manifested payload will be staying in the that that NRHO orbit around the moon, mm-hmm. kind of that polar orbit, it looks, yeah. looks that way. Uh-huh. And yeah, but we'll be, coming, we'll be coming back. Cool, all right. So there's a whole suite of landing and recovery systems as well that 
help allow us to um, retrieve the capsule once it once it lands. It allows us to survive reentry and then get to the capsule and recover it. Yeah. So landing and recover is that like uh, what was included in that package? Is that the parachutes or am I thinking yeah, something else? Yeah. Yeah. Like everything that we need on that heat shield, the parachutes. There's a, a system called the command module uprighting system that is, or the crew module uprighting system, excuse me, not Apollo. <laughs> and um, it is what will make sure that we are able to upright the vehicle should it land with its, you know, docking hatch side down in the water. We don't want it, that's not the proper orientation, right? That would have the crew hanging in a funny position in their seats. So yeah, we want little... it to flip back over on its own. So those Definitely. come out and inflate. Those are those big orange, you know, balloon things that you see on the top oh. of the capsule. We used them in EFT-1. Yes, so. yes. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. They're just they look like big puffy life jackets, sort of, I guess. Yep. Uh, yeah, cool. And there's a series of parachutes that go to that. I think there's 11 total parachutes when you take think about all the drogues and then the mains. So, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a whole system in and of itself. Just like the abort system mm -hmm. protects you from anything that might go wrong on the pad. Yeah. And then we also have a service module abort capability, which is should anything go wrong when you when you when you're made it to orbit, but you're now you're you're something happened that you're not able to complete the entire mission, but mm -hmm. you don't have to lose the crew. You can just abort to a, an Earth orbit mm -hmm. and then come back in, you know, uh, uh, intentionally from that orbit instead of having gone all the way out to the moon and back. Ah. So lots of orbit capability, a lot of capability for keeping the crew alive. In fact, you've got that launch abort capability, you've got the system, um, sorry, um, uh, what, uh, service module abort capability, you've got the 144 hour survival scenario, right? So right. with it when the crew is in their suits. Yes. Um, and then you also have, should you land just something off nominal, the, the crew, the cabin is required to provide the crew with a habit, habitable environment for up to 24 hours. So that would be a not very fun 24 hours, I can tell you right now. It's going to be, you're going to feel sick just from having gone through what you went through, let alone bobbing and up rocking on the ocean. Yes. Um, depending on where you landed, that might be kind of a warm cabin. Not a whole lot of cooling available for that whole time. There is ventilation. You open up what's called a snorkel fan and you will get airflow. Um, but yeah, it's going to be, but, but the, the point is, is that they're not going to, they will be able to stay alive and mm -hmm. be kept safe on the ocean for up to 24 hours. All right. A lot of things to think about for worst case scenario, but it seems like you got it, you got it like covered all along the way. Right? You got launch abort, you got crew survival in, within the suits, you got this whole waving in the ocean, but still able to, you know, figure it out, even if the capsule lands upside down, flipping it up like right side up. So yeah, that is basically what human spaceflight is all about. <laughs> like, in order to bring back, you know, that experience that they have and to be able to use that uh, knowledge and expertise during the mission, you got to keep them alive and you got to keep them performing well. So yeah. all of that goes into, you know, making sure that we, those at, those are national asset, assets at that point, right? <laughs> <laughs> all of our astronauts that go and get, get all this knowledge. The human in the human space flight is mm -hmm. definitely the most important. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Awesome. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That was an awesome description of, I felt like I was there. I felt like I was living in Orion. <laughs> I felt like I was slurping on those things through the, through the, through the suit. Uh, I didn't want to, but I felt it. Um, but yeah, no, that was really, that was really awesome. We're definitely, and I thought of so many different more 
podcast episodes that we can do just covering all of these different things because this was just like a high level like you know even just you know going through the intricate details of living on orion there's still so much more to talk about so uh definitely looking forward to another podcast thanks so much for coming on maybe one more time we'll probably have to have you another time all right thank you so much yeah cool Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Jessica Voss about living in Orion and kind of the space of how it's all laid out. And there's a lot more that we could have talked about uh, with Orion, as I mentioned at the end of the podcast. If you want to know more right now and just can't wait for another episode of Houston, we have a podcast, go to nasa.gov slash Orion. I would say there's definitely some cool stuff to come in Houston, we have a podcast. But if you want to know right now, just go to that website or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It's at NASA Orion. Uh, that's on Facebook. Twitter is at NASA underscore Orion. And then on Instagram, at Explore NASA is like Orion and Space Launch System, all of that kind of combined. If you have a question specifically about Orion, just use the, hash, use the hashtag AskNASA on any one of those platforms and uh, ask that question there. Or you can submit an idea to the podcast. Just make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast. Uh, this podcast was recorded on November 16th, 2017. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Rachel Kraft, and Laura Rashawn. And thanks again to Miss Jessica Voss for coming on the show. We'll be back next week. <laughs>